uh, welcome to Four for Friday. We continue with our different uh, <laughs> music each week to do the intro to the show. Uh, the format of our podcast uh, is we cover four topics, phrases, questions, uh, go through them pretty quickly, and uh, move on to the next one in and out, 20, 25 minutes. Uh, I'm Michael Gridley. This is Will Rob, my co-host. Hello, everybody. And uh, this is episode number six for us. Um, I'm happy to report episode number five was our most listened to episode since our first one. So uh, thank you. Uh, if you listened, we do appreciate it. Uh, let's jump right in with our first question. It comes from me. Uh, and Will, what did you learn from your favorite teacher? I think the favorite thing that I learned or maybe the, the favorite teaching moment was in a high school English class. I think his name was uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, taught us about writing. And he said the five paragraph essay was boring and we should stop using it. Okay. Which is a really radical thing to teach high school kids because pretty much everybody else in high school at that time was beating this, the, the five paragraph essay into our head as much as possible. Uh, and he said, that's a boring way to write. You should not do that anymore. And I think what I learned from it was how to connect my ideas and transition from one to another uh, in, a, in a logical way without having to kind of make a list, repeat the list, and then summarize the list um, that the five paragraph essay implies. So it didn't mean we couldn't use an introduction, didn't mean we couldn't kind of foreshadow how our argument was gonna go, uh, but just getting out of that really strict structure and, and thinking about how ideas are connecting mm -hmm. was helpful for my writing. So that's probably pretty risky for a high school. I mean, this is 25 years ago, right? A high school or 30 years ago, but it's pretty risky for a, a high school English teacher to be like, okay, the SAT writing portion is going to ask for this. All your college professors are going to ask for this, but you need to do it differently. Right. What about you? What did, what did you learn from a favorite teacher? Uh, so mine was in college and I had a professor in computer science who refused to answer any questions and he would always answer with, I don't know, have you looked it up in the manual? And what, what he was doing was super powerful, which was he was trying to make us self-sufficient rather than dependent learners. And like everybody would come into his class having come from you know, very conventional five paragraph essay kind of learning environment, right? The teacher is the oracle, they teach you everything. But when the teacher's gone, can you learn to be self-sufficient or not? And so, so this particular professor who was my favorite uh, by far, you know, it was very frustrating in the beginning, but then it was also very empowering, right? As he forced us to become, you know, you know self-paced learners, like resourceful learners. Yeah, I had a teacher in high school who would do a similar thing. He made all his tests open book. Yeah. And he would always say, life is open book. So not, not with the same kind of strictness, learn it yourself that, that that college professor did, but a similar kind of, if you can figure out how to, how to learn on the fly, if you can figure out what resources are available and use them, then that's a valuable learning skill also. Yeah. Why, why do you think it is that such a minority of teachers understand that that's, that's the ultimate aim here? It's not, it's not so much important what the kid learns about Texas or U.S. history in grade seven, but are they coming out as prepared adults? Like, 
like that's what I always think about with kids like school is not about do they know the right answer right now it's like are they going to be ready to be happy successful and the best them they can be when they leave but I think I think people are bad at saying no and so when when we have teachers who are used to that teacher expounds students absorb knowledge and we have students who are used to that like well I'll just ask the teacher and they'll tell me and I'll learn what I'm supposed to learn yeah I think it's actually like a tough negotiating moment for a guy like a college professor to consistently say, I don't know, learn it yourself. Because everyone's expectation is, wait, you're the teacher. You're supposed to be explaining this to me. <laughs> so, and so to you, fight that expectation yeah. and, and say, no, I'm going to teach you differently uh, takes, a lot of, takes a lot of guts. It's a little like Mr. Miyagi uh, teaching karate by having Danielson wax the, wax the floors. Right. Well, it's interesting now that I recall this particular professor, like his road to tenure was really choppy. Like he had a lot of negative reviews from students and would get called in the Dean's office cause he'd fail people. <laughs> he'd go in there, he'd go in there and talk to the Dean and they'd be like, why'd you fire this kid? And he'd be like, because they don't know the material. <laughs> and the Dean would be like, okay, we'll go talk to them because their parents are calling. Yeah. So, I think that's another thing that's interesting when you're talking about, you know, people's learning styles and what students are, are used to. I think in addition to the expectation, just, just teach me what I'm supposed to, to know and I'll, I'll absorb it and, and write it down on the test. Yeah. I think a lot of students will take it a step further and really work on negotiating what the expectations are and the parameters for the coursework before they do it. Uh, and it kind of, by by pushing everything back on the teacher like that, tell us exactly what it has to be done for for me to get an A. They they kind of undermine the the learning experience when the the teacher and the student collaborate in that way. Right. Yeah, I dig it. All right, we're out of time on this one. Let's move on to question number two. That is yours, Will. Okay, my question is: Is it time to retire the cult of personality around Warren Buffett? And who are the nominees to be the new sage on business and investing? Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, actually. I mean, the, the Buffett mystique has gone from, you know, he was operating in obscurity in the 60s and 70s to probably the right amount of focus on him in the 80s and 90s. And now it's such that the guy is basically, you know, a deity. And what you see is because of that, you have so many people that, you know, it's all about value and how do I unlock this stuff? And so, so of course, when you have a situation where everybody's copying his strategies, uh, that means the strategies aren't going to work anymore, right? That's how markets, markets work. You have to do something unique. And uh, so I think it's, it's kind of a disservice at this point for people to deify the guy so much, right? It, it turns out, you know, most people see that and think, well, I should just copy exactly what he's doing and that's how I'm going to win. And that, that's just not true. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I, you know, I wrote this, this question down and I, I thought about it and I, you know, did some reading on Buffett's career and I was more impressed with him than ever. And so I thought about the question and, and what I really am, I'm trying, I feel like I'm attacking a little bit with this question and that I think I'm trying to attack the cult of personality where we're hanging on, every word that he says and treating it as if it's uh, just golden investment advice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the, the reasons why his advice and his ideas and the things he said over the course of his career are going to be 
disappointed for a long time. Part of that is he's willing to admit when he's made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah, that was a mistake. I don't want to do that again. Or that was a mistake. I'm going to move on from that and not continue making the same mistake. So I do kind of think it's time to, you know, retire the idea that every single thing that he says, every opportunity to get a soundbite from Warren Buffett is going to be the answer for how we should invest in the market or how we should conduct business. Yeah. So if it's not Warren Buffett, who should we be listening to? Well, one more, one more point about Warren and Charlie, like Charlie Munger, like they are really, really smart dudes and what they've done has been hugely successful. They're also getting really old. Like, like Buffett's in his late eighties and Charlie's in his nineties. Like, like I'm impressed as, you know, as, as capable as they are still, but also like if, if nothing else, like they're getting old, like really old. <laughs> like, right. And that's part of the genesis of the question is, well, at what point are these guys going to start losing their fastball? Like, uh, you know, we see that they've made some mistakes in their investment career and that they're, they're kind of more high profile than they used to be. The recent one, of course, Buffett acknowledging that he made a mistake investing in airlines and saying, well, I'll never, I never want to do that again, but he made a similar mistake back in 2000, 2008 with an airline. And he yeah. said, well, I should never have invested in that airline. I, that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess the follow on question is, well, if not, if not them, then, then who should we be idolizing? Right. Yeah. And part of that is just, just the whole cult of personality, uh, a problem with this thing. Um, I'd like to nominate uh, Jeff Bezos as kind of our new sage on business and investing. I think mm-hmm. he's uh, bigger and doing more and he's been a huge innovator and had a lot of foresight for a period of 25 plus years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the day one stuff is that he has and a lot of the thinking that he's done about business is, is really excellent. I mean, there's just, you know, if you're going to pick, if you're going to pick shareholder letters that you want to read over time, um, you know, his are, his are great ones to read. Buffett's are, you know, of course, kind of the granddaddy, the Shakespeare of, of shareholder letters from a capital allocation standpoint. There's some other ones that are, are really good too. There's a guy who runs a software company called Mark Leonard. Uh, it's called Constellation Software. Like his, his letters are excellent as well. For me, those would be the two of the younger guys that I think have some really interesting ideas. But I think this comes back to my point around the problem of copying Buffett's uh, strategy when everybody else is copying it is if you don't figure out how to do something different, like you're never going to create outsized returns, right? And both Bezos and this guy, Mark Leonard from Constellation, and they just do vertical software. So industry specific software that they acquire, like those guys actually carved a different niche out and, and didn't try to just do what Buffett was doing, you know, in, in, in that way. Um, and I think the second category, you know, I'd love to throw out is like, I think, I think there's this kind of motif going through Twitter and, and a lot of social media now, especially out of Silicon Valley. Like the way you get out of challenging times is by creating things. And I think, you know, we can celebrate the people who build these big, huge uh, businesses from scratch and, you know, are, or the ones who come along later. But I think, you know, the people that I, you know, I'm inspired by a lot are the ones who are creating things who are comfortable starting early on and, and then using that kind of vision and, and driving the company, you know, from there. Um, 
So Benioff from Salesforce, I think is a great, great one around that, mm -hmm. right? He, he's been able to do something I don't think I could do, which is like be the CEO at inception and then be the CEO at, you know, 25 billion in market or 125 billion in market cap. Same with, um, with Eric, the CEO, uh, from zoom, like read that guy's right. stuff. That guy is a, that guy's, you know, uh, Elon Musk gets all the hype. You know, that guy, Eric Yuan from Zoom, he's the, he's the CEO we deserve. That guy's a badass. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that guy's awesome. Check out his Twitter, because at least until recently, uh, Eric from Zoom was like going in there doing customer support, like on the weekends when people would have problems with the product. Like, That's pretty really, amazing. He really pretty cool. Kept doing that. And it's probably good for uh, his, his vision and understanding of the business to get direct experience with the customers like that. Uh, going back to what you were saying about creating something in, in times of trouble, I would say you'll focus on what is, what is my value proposition to my customers? Are they getting a good value? Are they getting something that they want to be buying? Sweet. Well, I think we killed that one. Let's go on to question number three. Uh, this one's for you because you're mostly the real estate guy, Will. Uh, so there's been a lot of worry about what's happening with uh, rent collections, especially in the multifamily um, space. Uh, is it time to, to turn off the sirens or is there still a lot to worry about? I think it's time to turn the volume down. Uh, we're here on the fourth day of June and collections for my business look pretty positive, pretty similar to where they were in previous months. And, you know, just to set the context on around March 25th, uh, there was this kind of national fear that tenants just weren't going to be able to pay rent and would choose not to pay rent and they might all get evicted unless we stopped all evictions. Um, and what has actually happened is, uh, you know, it varies market by market, but the numbers suggest around 90% um, collections in both April and May for tenants, mm -hmm. you know, which is maybe not as good as landlords would want, but that's certainly within the parameters of uh, how you should be structuring your, your deals and um, giving yourself contingency if you don't get 100% collections. Uh, I think uh, a lot of a lot of landlords are very accustomed to uh, penalizing tenants with late fees or threatening evictions uh, when they didn't pay rent. And, you know, nationally, governance-wise, uh, a lot of that recourse has been taken away from, from landlords. So pro tip, if you're thinking about this issue, what you have to do if you're worried about not being able to penalize tenants when they don't pay the rent is you have to flip the incentive. You have to offer gift cards as a reward for paying the rent on time. And again, you have to focus on your value proposition to your tenants. So you have to be very uh, diligent about uh, your, your cleanliness, your response to crisis, your customer service, uh, and that responsiveness. And make your tenants feel safe, make them feel like their home is a comfortable place to be that they're, they're renting. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I hear you talk about this because it feels like you have a very, this is not a typical landlord like philosophy to their tenants, right? Like most, most landlords, 
at least the ones I spend time with, like approach their tenants more as numbers and less as human beings or even customers, right? They're just, they're just a bond, they're just a bond, you know, that's backed by somebody's personal belongings. Um, so how did you get to thinking about it that way, as opposed to kind of the more classical, like landlord tenant mindset that I see? I think as my business has matured, my shifting, my, my thinking has shifted on tenants. I mean, I always thought about like, what kind of value can I provide? How can I make the units better? How can I make them more appealing? That's kind of my, my business plan is to take a, a building that is underloved and underutilized it and give it the TLC and improvements that needs to be very valuable to the people who want to live there. Um, but I think as it's evolved, I've just observed other businesses and I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a restaurant with a good restaurant owner when a customer had a complaint. Mm-hmm. Their response is very emphatic. They, they, they comp things. They bring out free desserts. They bring out free beverages. They, they take something back to the kitchen and, and start over completely. Um, you know, and I think in the, the multifamily business, there's a tendency when tenants complain to say, oh, well, this is going to hurt my business because I now have to spend money trying to fix this complaint. And really it was caused by the, the tenant. And if you look at a lot of other businesses, they don't really ever consider whether the customer is being reasonable or not. When the customer brings up a complaint, they just respond in a way that the customer feels good mm-hmm. right away. And so I think that's just a, a lot different from how multifamily typically operates. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a scenario in which, this, you know, it looks like things are going okay, you know, and I, I'm watch, I watched a video this morning of like the casinos reopening in Vegas and like there were a bazillion people going in there. <laughs> no masks, no nothing. Uh, where I am right now, like nobody, nobody's wearing masks except for probably me and my family. And I'm exaggerating a bit, but, you know, is there a scenario in which we look up in September and this all comes back and then, and then real estate, multifamily needs to be worrying or, or how are you thinking about it in that, that situation? In that situation, I'm thinking about it the way I was in April and May. Like I really want to make sure that my customers feel good about the business relationship and about the, the apartment that they're renting. But on the other hand, they're using the apartments more than ever before. And they would be if we had a resurgence of the rise. There's, there's a sense of like, I don't want to move. I don't want to go out and do a bunch of things. I'm going to stay in my unit and, and occupy it. So I think the, the collections is not the most serious issue and the, and the occupancy isn't the most serious issue. I, I, actually, I do think occupancy can become a serious issue this summer as restrictions loosen, if we still have really high unemployment and people are looking to save money, they're gonna trade down to to less expensive units or they're gonna move in together, they're gonna double up. And so the total demand for housing may fall. And I think it's really difficult to lease space in this environment. So it's easy for me to imagine a scenario where landlords have to get very competitive with each other to bring in the new tenants when they do have vacant units. Right. Very interesting. And I guess this all gets much more nuanced. You know, you're in the Denver submarket. So I guess it all gets much more nuanced if you're in California versus other places. And then probably more nuanced depending upon who's been hit the hardest by COVID and, and now with the, you know, with the unrest um, 
you know, if, if there's protests up and down your street, you may be, you may be having a harder time, you know, releasing those spaces in the future. Yeah, that, that's certainly problematic. I think one of the things about the, the reporting nationally is you get a lot of reporters who are looking at national data and, you know, making these big inferences on macroeconomic national trends. You talk to real estate guys, and, and I saw this on, on, on Twitter last week. Somebody said they were in the real estate business, and they were asked, is, is this investing in real estate a, a good investment? And the guy would say, what street is it on? <laughs> which, which side of the street is it on? Uh, and so there are these very, very specific regional differences among properties and markets and sub-markets, uh, you know, Okay, Denver collections have been a little bit better than 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 national, kind of ninety-three to ninety-five percent. Uh, Class A collections have been excellent during this time period, but uh, occupancy and pricing are really being challenged. Uh, yeah. Class C collections have struggled the most, uh, so it's very very specific. And again, that's why you have to get, think about what is my my value proposition by, to my tenants. How do I compete with properties similar to mine is my property a slightly better price for a slightly better product yep. and i think that's how you try to keep people yeah and i think this is also part of a a very bull case for suburbs now like covid and then this uh unrest on top of it like like especially you think about the types of multifamily multifamily suburb versus multifamily inner city like it's hard not to be bullish about the suburban stuff just just from a you know those two factors alone yeah i saw a thing about a, a read that focused on suburban single family home rentals mm -hmm. and, and their their collections are dynamite and their rental rates are dynamite and their their the value of their their REIT is really good right now because they are hitting kind of the, the perfect product type for what people are thinking about right now yeah Cool. All right. Well, I think it's time to move on to our final question and it's yours. Okay. What have you learned about real world negotiating that couldn't be learned in a classroom or a book? So, so I think this is, this is a hard question. We talked about it a bit before we started. Unlike other things, I didn't feel like I had like something immediately insightful to answer. Um, you know, I think the one thing I did come on, come around about is, you know, so much of what you learn in negotiating, like from a theory and, a, and an academic standpoint is really like, they want to put everything into, into steps, right? Like you're playing Bach and like so much of the way people really negotiate things is, you know, a bunch of psychology, a bunch of uh, heuristics, so rules of thumb, like all of those things like together are kind of the opposite of the way you, you hear and feel about it when you're taught how to negotiate in, uh, in academia or, you know, from a book, from a, a professor. Yeah, my thought on this is I've done like the, the business school coursework on negotiating and there's, you know, there's all the talk about uh, anchoring and setting expectations and uh, how to get yourself in the right mindset where you convince yourself that you are 100% correct and the other party is 100% is incorrect and how you don't move off your spot. And so you go through all that and then usually the exercise is they pair everybody off in the class into pairs of two and they say, okay, you people are arbitrarily sellers and you people are arbitrarily buyers. Negotiate the price of this 
you know, random fi fictional object. Um, and my problem with that is this idea that negotiating is just two people who just go into a room together and try to bend each other to their, to their will by argument or yelling or uh, <laughs> pounding their fists on the table. And it's kind of good practice to go through that, that exercise, but that's not at all like real world negotiation because most of the time in the real world, we're not negotiating one-on-one. -on -one. We're actually participating in a bigger bidding game where if I'm the buyer of a product, I have a lot of different sellers I could look to. And I'm going to look to who's got a good product at a good price. And I'm going to buy it from that person. And if I'm the seller of a product, like I know there are a lot of different buyers that are going to look at me. So I can choose the, the buyers that, that, you know, offer the, the highest price or the buyers that make most sense. Um, you know, sellers, sellers, if you, if you go and lowball a seller, they don't have to sell to you. They can just ignore you and wait for somebody else to make an offer. Yeah. So well, I think, it, it, I think it the one-on-one -on -one game that is the, the construct of most thinking about teaching negotiating is really flawed. Yeah. Well, it looks at it as a, you're saying it looks at it as a, a win-lose scenario when actually what mostly happens in negotiating in the real world is win-wins or no deals, right? That, right. In, in a healthy economy, that tends to be what happens. Um, yeah, no, I totally dig that. I, you know, and I think that that ties back to the broader kind of dysfunction that you see in, in, in academia and in theory is, you know, so much of it is tried to try to take academia and use that as applicable stuff to the real world. And like, it, there's such a gap there, right? These, these folks who've never spent time in the real world, but just spent time talking about it. Like they seem like they understand it, but when it comes to practice and how to teach it, like they, they don't most times. And that's a broad generalization about a, academia. Like there's definitely spots of people that, that get it right. And you see them kind of stand out, but others like, it's just, it's just such a huge gap to how the real world works versus what happens in inside of a theoretical academic environment. Now to the credit of business schools and academia, there is a lot of writing about the idea versus a, of a distributive negotiation and an integrative negotiation distributive being like, okay, well there's one pie and we're just going to work out how we split up that, that pie into, into pieces. Uh, and then integrative is like, well, actually there's a crust and there's filling and there's topping and you like the crust, but I like the filling. And if we really talk to each other and listen to each other, we do better at creating win-win deals. So we effectively make the pie bigger. Huh. All right. It's really a paraphrase of what you were saying about win-win deals. Yeah. The deal doesn't happen unless both parties really feel that it's good for them. Yeah. For sure. Well, hey, we are uh, towards the end of time. I know you had a bonus question you wanted to talk about today. So, let's, well, let's not that. so much a question, but I think in in this particular week in 2020, uh, it's impossible not to talk about uh, race and protest and Black Lives Matter. And uh, I think we should be thinking about this every week, and and we don't always think about it. Uh, I'd like to take a, a page out of uh, George W. or yeah, George W. Bush's uh, speech and, and say, let's, let's be listeners rather than and talkers. I'd say I've been listening to Larry Wilmore's podcast on The Ringer. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any thoughts you'd like to add? 
Uh, you know, I think I, 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 we talked about this beforehand and I think this is such a good teaching moment for me is like, um, I think everybody feels compelled to say something, right? And like, oh, let's speak out. Like, you know, and, and, and the reality is like, I think, you know, when we talked about this before and I heard your attitude to say, hey, I need to be listening more. I was like, oh, you know, that's what I've been talking. You know, that's kind of that idea that's been percolating in my head. Like people don't need me to add, you know, some platitude or some hollow whatever. But, you know, we, we need to, as a society, need to be trying to, instead of shooting rubber bullets, like listen to what these folks have to say and then use that as a way to make change. So, I, I mean, I don't have a good answer and I'm, I feel kind of guilty about it. I, I think I need to take away spending more time to, to listen to folks and you know i'm going to start with the the podcast you mentioned so um that's a long-winded answer of saying no but thank you for for helping me fix my thinking on it well yeah and i think for people who who do have something to say and want to speak out let's let's all you know speak out if we feel like we have to speak out but let's not do it just this week let's let's keep listening and keep expressing ourselves to make sure we're communicating yeah yeah totally with you Cool. All right, man. Well, I think uh, let's wrap it up for this week. Uh, I'll play this for my son and we'll see if he thinks this one's better than last week. I think if we make it a little bit better each time. He's then, a tough uh, critic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my 10-year-old son, he, uh, he's got serious changes. He makes me pause it whenever I play it in the car. He's like, Dad, you need to fix this or fix that. So uh, we'll let him keep doing that. And then a handful of people that listen gave us suggestions. So uh, we're very grateful for that. And, uh, you know, keep doing this. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks to our listeners. Bye-bye.